lots of questions about the dollar, folks, but we'll make the case that it's not going anywhere as the world's reserve currency. Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of April 17th, 2023, but it may as well be 2015 or 2010 or really any year that I've been in this business based on a major source of questions in the last week. That's right, questions about the dollar and specifically whether we're seeing a major wave of de-dollarization. Those questions are back and back in style. Julia Herman and I touched on this briefly last week, and we're lucky enough to have her back to dive into it more. Welcome back, Julia. Greetings. Let's get our listeners back into the groove of this conversation around the U.S. dollar. It comes up all the time. Why now? So we mentioned last week that we think a big driver of this de-dollarization narrative is China's successful brokerage of a diplomatic detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia. This was an agreement reached back in March, but in early April, representatives from all three countries met in China for the first formal gathering of those leaders since Iran and Saudi Arabia broke off diplomatic relations in 2016. This is a really perfect example of how geopolitics can be directly tied into views about the dollar. In this case, worries about China overtaking the U.S. former role in managing Middle East alliance structures seems to have sparked worries about a broader lessening of U.S. global influence may also mean dollar weakness ahead on a structural basis. Exactly. But this news didn't create the narrative on its own. Over the last few months, we've seen a confluence of other factors that could lead investors to similar conclusions. Saudi Arabia, beyond its Iran deal, has discussed with the Gulf and with China the potential to price some oil contracts in renminbi. Russia, after being sanctioned heavily by the West, has now almost entirely shifted its reserve structure into a combination of renminbi and gold. Then there's Brazil and Argentina, both of which have stronger ties to China than the U.S. economically. And they've both announced their decision to launch a currency union, which is seen as a bid to distance in part from the dollar. I have some thoughts. Same. (laughs) Well, first, I think it's important to validate all of this news. Having a global financial system dominated by the U.S. dollar hasn't helped a lot of countries, or at least hasn't helped them consistently. So efforts to diversify exposure, honestly, make some sense. I couldn't agree with you more there. But let's talk about where the de-dollarization narratives are really being promoted the most strongly. First, in countries that benefit from diversification away from the dollar, like China, like Russia, like Iran. And then second, in instruments that benefit from this. So the cryptocurrency community is one of those. And to put it fondly, gold bugs. Yeah, not to disappoint the many investors who could benefit from a less dominant dollar, but we do have to say that seeing waves of news flow about the end of the dollar is a tale as old as time. Like you said at the top, Lauren, at least this narrative is as old as 2004 when The Economist wrote about the disappearing dollar, or 2011 when The Wall Street Journal quoted that the dollar's reign was at its end, or in 2012 when Iran began accepting yuan-based payments for oil. So 
let's then go back to the view that I put forward at the top, which was that we don't see the dollar going anywhere. In fact, we see the dollar remaining the world's foremost reserve currency for the next 10, 20, maybe even 50 years. Because if you look at the very long-term view of the major reserve currencies over the past several hundred years, you see that there's an arc for each reserve currency, which has tended to last about a hundred to several hundred years. We're right about around the hundred year mark for dollar dominance. And the news articles that you mentioned, Julia, could well be right in that the dollar likely won't stay on top forever. But in our view, timing is such a critical part of how to analyze the dollar's position, how to analyze an investment position, and still have a lot of runway, maybe even decades before there's a credible threat for, if you will, dominance. All right. So can we talk about why now? Of course we can, Julia. Why? Do we feel the dollar isn't going to lose its reserve currency status anytime soon? I got two key reasons for you today, Lauren. Oh, I like it so much better when there are three reasons. Hate to disappoint. Yep, just two reasons from me this week. Number one, the level to which the dollar is embedded in the global financial system is not something that can be reversed quickly. And number two, we don't see any credible timeline for that to be reversed quickly or even at all, given a complete lack of viable alternative reserve currencies. Now, of course, things can change, but as you mentioned, this is a many decades type of development, and so we have to be really careful in jumping the gun on changes of the kind that you're discussing. So let's dig into your argument number one, then. When I think about how the dollar is embedded as the base of the global financial system, I think about the following. It's the primary currency countries choose to hold as reserves, 59% of all of global reserves to be exact. It's also the base for currency pegs, including Saudi Arabia's, and that takes me to the fact that nearly all of commodity contracts globally are priced in dollars, even if they're traded between two non-dollarized and non-pegged countries. And then I guess I'd have to add trade. The U.S. share of global trade is huge, and so the dollar's easy transactability and convertibility reinforce this prevalence of the dollar in all these different systems. Yeah, you've covered a lot of how the dollar dominates, and I'm just going to add a few things to that list. I'll add global debt. About 50% of all cross-border loans and international debt are dollar-denominated. And then because the dollar is the base for all that transacting you mentioned, about 50% of global trade is dollar-based, and the dollar is involved in 44% of foreign exchange transaction volume. It also controls its own international payment system called SWIFT. And remember, there's two sides to every trade. So that 44% of global trade is each way, really just an astonishing volume of activity. And so that's a pretty clear underlying understanding here. The dollar is trusted to hold its value, hence its use in reserves, and it's trusted to be fully transactable and convertible across all these different activities. And that actually takes me into my second argument, which is that there are no alternatives we see to the dollar right now. It's interesting because there are other reserve currencies out there. There's the euro, the British pound, and the Japanese yen. Yes, there are. And that's why I think we need to talk about here what it actually takes to have a reserve currency, to achieve and maintain reserve currency status. We see four key pillars here. A reserve currency must be trusted to hold its value independently, like you mentioned. And that involves having a trusted central bank, a free-floating currency, and no capital controls. Number two, a currency must be fully and freely convertible. Number three, it must be globally accepted. And number four, it must be liquid, which at least in my view really means having a deep bond market that includes a lot of foreign demand. 
I like how we're thinking about these requirements because it helps us see that even though the euro, the pound, the yen, and other currencies meet these standards, they do so to a lesser extent than the dollar. For instance, let's take convertibility. The dollar is utilized here more than any other currency. As of 2019, for example, the dollar comprised 44% of all over-the-counter foreign exchange transactions in terms of volume. That's astonishing. Versus 16% for the euro, 8.5% for the yen, and 6.5% for the pound. So 44% for the dollar compared to the next best 16% for the euro. And to include one that's not a reserve currency but is relevant for this conversation, that's 2% in the Chinese renminbi. Yeah, so the dollar is pretty dominant there. And then let's consider global acceptance. All of these different currencies we mentioned are globally accepted, but commodities are only priced in dollars. Exactly. And another measure of how globally accepted a currency really is, is how prevalent it is in global debt issuance, for example. Many countries out there, especially in the emerging market world, issue debt that's denominated in a currency that's not their own. For example, Argentina issuing dollar-denominated debt. There are, of course, some risks to countries doing this because of currency movements, but it can help countries get financing where otherwise there wouldn't be demand or appetite for their local currency debt. So we can actually look at the share of this market with some Fed data. Want to guess how much of this is dollar-based? I would guess at least half. Exactly. The dollar comprises 64% of foreign currency debt issuance as of 2021. Then next up is the euro comprising 24%, the pound with 3.7%, the yen with 2.9%, and then finally that Chinese renminbi with 1.4%. And then there's a smaller amalgamation of, of other currencies in there. Okay, so we can see how none of these other reserve currencies quite measures up to the dollar within our framework of what it takes to be a reserve currency. They might be reserve currencies, but again, with lesser dominance globally. Yeah, and there are also some country-specific issues at play as well as to why we don't see any of the other existing reserve currencies rising back up as the dominant one, not the least of which is the fact that the euro has had several existential crises about whether its currency union would even hold up. Crises that have not meant the end of the euro, thanks to my personal hero, Mario Draghi. In case anyone listening thinks that she is joking, she has a cardboard cutout of him in her office. <laughs> Guilty. So beyond that tangent, the other diversifier global reserve currencies don't seem to be up to par in replacing the dollar, at least not today. So how about the one that everyone's talking about, the renminbi, or also known as the yuan? I might say don't even get me started, because as it turns out, when I do get started on whether China can build a reserve currency, I can be pretty long-winded. <laughs> and that's that's why this is going to be a two-part episode. And next week, we're going to address this really important question of why we don't believe the Chinese renminbi is a credible competitor to the dollar over the next several decades. I think it's really important to address that one head on because it's most mentioned in the news. But before we go today, I think it's just as important to ask ourselves if you take everything we've said as true and there's no competitor today to the US dollar, and none of the currencies look likely to replace the USD, then how can it be replaced? I mean, I agree with our aggregate views here, but global currencies have, over time, been replaced. If any of our listeners are history buffs, they'll know that the Venetian Ducat, the Spanish dollar, the British pound, these have all dominated global trade for a hundred or even hundreds of years, and then they're eventually replaced. I really love this question because there's a really interesting answer. There is a case to be made that what has historically overthrown dominant global currencies is not the things that you'd expect. 
changing geopolitics, wars, domestic political issues, but actually that innovation plays a major role. Bingo, or at least a combination of all those factors, right? Let's look at the British pound as an example. It became dominant when steamships were invented and made global trade more expansive, more truly global. And then the U.S. dollar took over for the British pound when the telegraph and the aviation industry expanded trade once again. The development of the Federal Reserve System, you might not think about that as an innovation, but it's actually really important if you think about it, made the security and transactability of the dollar more approachable too. My only slight pushback to the innovation argument when it comes to the dollar specifically is that a big reason we needed the Federal Reserve was because of the world wars. And the U.S. Marshall Plan played a big role in rebuilding Europe after World War II and in dollar hegemony thereafter. Well, whether it's war or innovation or overlapping issues like these, as I think about these changes, they're difficult to predict in advance. You may be able to look at the telegraph as an invention and say, yes, I think this is going to revolutionize communications. But it's not straightforward that you would then say, and I think it's going to contribute to a major shift in global transactions, and that will result in a new dominant global currency in 17 years or whatever the case may be. Yeah, it's tough. So then let's just do a survey of today's landscape then and look for potential innovations that might change the global currency landscape in some way. Top of mind is probably blockchain technology as the main interesting contender. It could enable central banks to manage digital versions of their currencies on a blockchain, reducing the need for transactions using the dollar itself potentially. So what do you think? Major dollar threat? Hard to tell, but it is on our monitoring list. And in any case, a transition is likely to occur slowly, as the adoption of blockchain technology would require very careful consideration of issues like privacy, connectivity, monetary policy. It's also not clear to me that any blockchain technology wouldn't include a transition towards central bank digital currencies. And within a system of central bank digital currencies, you'd probably have a U.S.-driven or dollar-like central bank digital currency involved. And so it'd likely be a highly important player. Other potential innovations that could affect the dollar's dominance also include mass commercialization of artificial intelligence or quantum computing, even green energy innovation. You know, to illustrate that point hypothetically, if Mexico were to invent and commercialize a perpetually producing, waste-free energy source, we might all end up using the Mexican peso. I love this idea around innovation rather than only politics or geopolitics as the driver of major changes to the global financial system. I think it's creative and helps us as investors to think outside of the box because that's how things have happened in the past. And what I'm hearing from you, Julia, and from this conversation is that ultimately for a currency to be globalized, there must be global demand for it, which is determined by a complex array of factors that can't be limited to innovation or anything else we've discussed today on its own. That brings us to our Portfolio Pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And now that we've firmly established our view that fears of de-dollarization are overblown, at least for now, let's talk about options, whether you agree with us or not. For those very firmly in the de-dollarization camp, alternative avenues like cryptocurrency or gold are often seen as beneficiaries of a less dollar-dominant system. International investments of both debt and equity are also a way to leverage this view, but this should be done with the understanding that currency fluctuations can meaningfully impact dollar-based return here over a variety of time horizons. 
And for those who are more inclined to agree that the dollar is sticking around, but perhaps wanting some diversification options, hedged or partially hedged international strategies can help with that diversification without forcing the investor to take a strong currency view. With that, Julia, thank you so much for a fun discussion. See you next week. Coming up next, it's a lighter data week, but we're going to be monitoring data in the housing sector, in manufacturing and services sector sentiment, and of course, with the quarterly earnings season. Tune in next week for that second episode about currency, where we're focusing on China's potential future with or without a reserve currency. But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com by clicking the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamats, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Select data for this episode was sourced from the Bank of International Settlements, G0, the Federal Reserve Board, Geologic, and Refinitive. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.